Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my privilege to be joined by W. David O. Taylor, author of Glimpses of the New Creation, Worship, and the Formative Power of the Arts, published in 2019 by Erdman's. David is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. David, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, congratulations on the wonderful book. I can't wait to get into it with you. But before we dive into that, I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Well, let's see. I was born and raised uh, in Guatemala City, Uh, born and raised a missionary kid, specifically moved around the States, did my undergrad at the University of Texas, studied international relations. And then ended up in seminary right after that, Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Did an MA in Systematic Theology at THM in New Testament. And then served as a pastor full-time for about 10 years in Austin, Texas. Then did my PhD at Duke in Theology and have been at Fuller for the past seven years. And I I write on Theology, Theology of the Arts, Theology Worship and the Arts. Those are my uh, fields of interest. That's excellent, David. So just as a way to get us into this book, I wonder if uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, who are you writing for? Who's the primary audience that you're intending to both uh, as a, you know, on a vocational kind of level, like what kinds of, of people mm. vocationally might be interested in, in reading this? And also, you know, what kinds of, of say, traditions are you writing into mm. or, or trying to cover? Mm. Okay. Yes, it's the state of truism that you write the book that you wish existed, right? Yeah. And I, I wrote the book that I wish had been on my shelf. And to say that otherwise, I, I had a great deal of books on, say, history of the arts uh, in the worship of the church, uh, music, you know, architecture, painting, so on and so forth. I have books that were biblical studies or biblical explorations of the arts and worship, books that explored theological perspectives. But I think I was more specifically interested in providing both scholars, teachers, and practicing church leaders, you know, pastors, worship leaders, you know, perhaps artists in, in congregational settings, a book that would help them understand how the different media of art music, architecture, visual art, poetry, drama, film, dance, so on and so forth, how the different media of the art form us in different ways. Mm. And part of the, as I put it, part of the bee in my bonnet and the burr under my saddle was this uh, pattern of of language that I would find in all these different uh, disciplines exploring the place uh, of the arts and worship that they would use very similar language. You know, the music 
bring us into these transcendent encounters with God or music deepens our spiritual relationship with God or you know, music helps us to see the face of God or to love God, right? Well, lo and behold, uh, painters and visual artists and architects would say the exact same thing. Or poets, right? People who love words would say, oh, music brings us into these transcendent experiences. And nobody was really asking or, or, or answering, asking or answering really the question, but how does language form our brains, our sociality, our sense of self, our self in the world, our self before God uh, in unique ways that architecture might do in categorically different ways. And then even within architecture, you know, you sing, let's say you sing the doxology in somebody's living room because you're part of a house church. That's a very different experience of that uh, music of that language than if you're at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, you know, singing the doxology. <clears throat> and so I think I was interested in mining that feel, that, you know, territory a little bit more deeply to help both those who are teaching in this area and those who actually <laughs> are implementing, are, are shaping mm -hmm. real people in real contexts to say, no matter what, this is, now I'm asking your second question, no matter what your tradition is or your denomination, and I'm not, the book is not attempting, how to say this, it, it's not primarily attempting to persuade you to worship like I do. Yeah, It's mainly trying to help you be a little bit more thoughtful, careful, uh, knowledgeable, I guess, in how it is that your practices of art in a corporate worship context are both opening up and closing down possibilities to form us, to form our sense of God, to form our sense of self and our self, sense of self in the world. So that if you only sing with certain kinds of music, I'm hoping that this book, for example, will help you wonder, are there other practices of music, uh, other kinds of melodies and harmonies and arrangements of sound that may help you to know something about God, uh, the kingship of God, the holiness of God, the nearness of God, the, uh, the shepherdness of God. Uh, more clearly, more profoundly, uh, knowing these things about God, perhaps in a way that expands your knowledge and love of God for the sake of, you know, your mission in the world, your vocation in the world. So just to bring this to a close, whether you're a Reformed reader or a Pentecostal or, or Anglican or Catholic or, or Baptist, I'm wanting first for you to understand carefully how it is, what you do is actually forming your people. It's not a neutral enterprise. Yeah. Secondarily, I'm encouraging you to consider the possibilities that within your own tradition, there are you know, deposits of, of wisdom and, and, and artistic practices that you have yet to you know, explore or make you know, something of. And then beyond that, to say there may be riches of wisdom and, 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 you know, artistic practices in other traditions that may be, you know, uh, 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 denominational theological neighbors to you that you may feel, as it were, safe 
to explore. And I say safe because a lot of people get very um, nervous, very anxious about adopting what I call liturgical art practices from very distant theological denominational, you know, uh, traditions because it is felt to be an intrusion or undermining of, you know, faithful worship. So all that to say, I have these audiences that are both sort of the teacher, the people who are instructing, but also the practitioners, church leaders, worship, you know, leaders, artistic leaders. Um, and I'm hoping that any audience uh, denominationally will find something of benefit. That's the hope at least. That's great, David. You know, you, you talked about the the very f- emotive or flowery, you know, charged language that sometimes people use talking about the arts, you know, yes. the, the experience. And yeah, sure. But why? Like, why does this particular art like have that effect? And uh, so it, it's it's so great that you've, you've given us some of those tools to explore that. So let's move into this question of arts in worship. Mm. You talk about how different traditions have different emphases or different starting points mm-hmm. that influence the way that the liturgical arts function, you, you know, functional worship theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it may be helpful just to say that the first three chapters of the book are exercises in defining our terms. Because a lot, a lot of what I found when I read, you know, books from different, you know, liturgical and theological traditions and, and these books are talking to one another within the community, but they're talking to other communities. And often the case, they're talking across one another. They're not really truly hearing what the other truly wants. Um, so things, are, things too easily get lost in translation. So, so one of the goals at the beginning of this book was to say, let me establish a series of definitions. You, you may or not may, may or may not buy my definition. That's fine, but at least you know what I mean when I say worship. You know what I mean when I say art, and you know what I what I mean when I say a theology of worship or theology of art. But when it comes to worship, and uh, and that chapter, one of the things I hope to do. Well, I had no intention of really suggesting a, a prescriptive normative understanding of worship, because that wasn't really the intention of the book. Uh, Because I'm not working within one tradition, speaking to my people saying, hey, this is how we ought to understand worship and let's get on board with it. It's mainly to say, here's this territory of language about worship, specifically, obviously, corporate worship or public worship. And I think it's helpful for us to uh, to come to this task knowing that that how we begin to articulate an understanding of good worship, faithful worship, true worship, however you want to you know qualify it, is not neutral, right? So I have sort of these four basic starting points. You can come into the discussion saying, "Hey, I'm going to look at the Bible and see what the Bible says," and that's my starting point. Others say Anglican, Lutheran, uh, Catholic may say. Um, our tradition has already funded us with a, a pretty decent understanding, and we're going to start with you know, our tradition, what it says. We trust that God, the Spirit, has already spoken through the tradition. Off we go. Others will start with maybe very specific theological ideas about God, because God is holy, holy judge, holy other. Therefore, right, certain things follow. Or because God is loving, uh, tender, compassionate. 
uh, fatherly, whatever. Therefore, you know, worse. Yeah. And then the fourth starting point would be experiential. That is, we have experienced the redemptive power of God. We have experienced the love of God. We have experienced the the delivering, you know, uh, might of God. Uh, and therefore, worship follows from these things. And and to those that say, oh, starting with experience makes me nervous, I would simply say, gosh, look at the New Testament. <laughs> it's chock full of people having experiences of Jesus or experiences of the Holy Spirit. And then those experiences in turn begin to fund theological reflection, which anecdotally, when I was in seminary 25 years ago, I had Gordon Fee, the New Testament scholar, as my New Testament professor, we are in a course on Romans. We get to Romans 8, where you start having lots and lots of Holy Spirit language and being a very young, naive, ignorant man that I was. I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Fee, gosh, I mean, what was the early church's theology of the Spirit? I mean, this is kind of crazy. And like, like, what did they have? Where did they get it? And he said, David, they experienced the Spirit, and then they tried to figure it out with the Holy Spirit. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a really good answer. He's like, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> So all that to say, starting points aren't neutral. Starting points mm-hmm. create certain rail lines. And the rail lines are, are unlike, you know, walking trails that can kind of bend this way and that way. They tend to go in one direction. And I simply want the reader to understand, hey, um, just because you say you're starting with Bible or tradition or theology or experience, um, there's nothing if I may say this at a critical level, not critical, not negative, but just raising a question, there's nothing neutral or self-evident about why you actually go down a certain trajectory within. Because if you begin with the Bible, it's not self-evident where exactly you should actually go for a starting point for worship. Should you go to Genesis? Should you go to Exodus? Should you go to the Psalms? The prophetic literature, you know, with Isaiah, and you know, standing before God in Isaiah 6 and the sort of this holy moment? Or should you begin in Acts 2, 42 to 47, which a lot of you know traditions do? So even there, I guess I just want to say, hey, there's something really exciting and awfully at stake in where we begin our starting and then sort of the network or the web of connections that we make to say, hey, at the end of the day, at the end of the road, this is how we ought to worship. And I just, I guess I just want to say, um, there's a software running you know, behind the machinery, just sort of heads up, it might be helpful to re-look at, you know, machinery and, and the software and to say, is this, is this the only story that can be told in how we worship and why we worship? And then, of course, the arts kind of factor into kind of that matrix. Yeah, that's, that's so good, David. I love that phrase that it comes up throughout the book. That it's not a neutral decision how, where you start, just like whatever particular art that you're using, it's it's not neutral. Um, and so it just forces you to examine the implications of the of sometimes the choices that we don't even realize that we've uh, inherited. So you, you tackle this, um, you know, epically huge question. Uh, what What is the meaning of art? Uh, or what are the meanings of arts but i love how you broke down i mean this is this massive philosophical aesthetic question but you broke it down into these two really helpful big categories of family resemblances and then focused human experiences could you talk a little bit about how you try to tackle this question yeah i mean uh writing an answer to the question what is art it, it, it can be a, an awfully ter- a paralyzing experience because all of us do is 
uh, it's you're mute before sort of this constellation of chaos, uh, if I can put those two terms together, because there are so many different opinions about what art is and the purpose of art, so on and so forth. So again, instead of um, starting out of the gate with this is what art is and here's the singular punctiliar definition, I instead sort of do uh, the work of a cartographer. I try to say, if, we, if you go in the helicopter and go above the landscape <clears throat> of all of North America or all of South America or all of Europe, let's just take a really large region, then my goal is to map out, I think, the significant features of this ecology of what constitutes art. And to say sort of it's in this family resemblance of features that you kind of get um, not so much a, a center point, but sort of this node of coherence. That is what makes art art and not something else. That is artistic decisions come into play when you design a Nike basketball shoe because you're talking about color and fabric and and you know, the feel of it all and what it, what it makes you imagine. I'm the new Michael Jordan. I'm the new LeBron James. Um, and you feel awesome in it, right? Those are kind of artistic decisions. But then a commercial about the shoe is made. And that's sort of another layer of artistic density, as it were. And then you take a Nike shoe and you put it into a gallery. And then you've got an even deeper level of artistic sort of density, um, now the focal point really is these, what I call these aesthetic characteristics of things that tend to be called art, which is the sensory, the affective, emotional, the imaginative, and sort of this metaphoric generative capacity of art. That Art is always in the business of generating, pumping metaphors into the world. So the Nike basketball is metaphorically related to, let's say, Michael Jordan. You're not literally Michael Jordan when you put the shoes on, but you feel like Michael Jordan. And then the, the, the advertisement goes to another level. It's not really about saying buy the shoe because it's well-made. It's buy the shoe because it's going to give you a certain feel for yourself. It's going to help you imagine yourself to be this amazing basketball player. You put it in the gallery. Now we have commentaries on how it is that art and sports get married together and generate certain ideas about what it means to be human and so I'll just say I had the family resemblance, but then I really kind of um, try to unpack how it is that the arts bring us into what I call intentional and intensive experiences of the aesthetic dimension of our humanity, which is to say our sensory, emotional, imaginative, and metaphoric aspects of our humanity. Mm -hmm. In the context of worship, this is, I think, what's happening at, in terms of forming our, our humanity in a very kind of concentrated way. That's great. And so then you you start to really unpack this with these uh, distinct uh, focused looks at the these different disciplines. So you, I mean, we have musical arts, visual arts, poetic arts, narrative arts, theater arts, kinetic arts, and you've got even more in the appendix. So <laughs> we could talk. Uh, I mean, about any one of these, but I'm you know, which one's your favorite? Which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> yes, that's an unfair question. Uh, they're all my babies, uh, as they say. Um, let me just sort of hopscotch through a few. 
Um, when it comes to music and worship, I think across every denomination, you could probably find one person in every theological tradition that would say, I hope our music helps us to know God better. I mean, I, I think 99%, I'll just put a 1% that maybe a tradition out there really is in it. Actually, there probably is more than 1%. But let's say a great majority. So then the question is, what helps us to know God? And, and then, of course, what about God are we to know? And how do we know these things, right? So if I want to know a human being better, like you, Ryan, that's a certain enterprise, which is very different if I say I want to know the properties of the table upon which my computer is sitting, right? Yeah. It's a different mode. It's a different epistemic uh, medium of exchange. So when it comes to music, so let's say, gosh, we want to adore God. Great. That sounds like a pretty reasonable 2,000 years worth verifiably you know, substantiated, affirm, aff, uh, you know, affirmable thing that we want to know about God. So then the Reformed tradition, like Keith, Keith Getty, Keith Christian Getty, would say, hey, look, the ballad, the Irish ballad, it's a wonderful, user-friendly, universally, quote-unquote, accessible musical medium. And uh, so that's going to be the perfect vehicle by which everybody at any time and place on planet Earth could adore God. Now we need some words. So what is it that's going to help us to affirm our adoration of God or enable us to adore God more deeply with our minds and hearts? Well, let's write a song called In Christ Alone. Okay. And I say, fair enough. That, that's, that sounds great. It's a great song. I've sung it many, many times in many different kinds of settings. And I think the truth of it bears itself out. However, when you put it side by side, and I do this in the book with Hillsong's song, Oceans, their goals are pretty much the same. They want the, the, the singer to have this deepening experience of the adoration of God. And they would say, hey, you know, this pop rock anthemic kind of musical medium, it's especially suitable to do this. And we need some words to help us do this. And both songs are going to access lots of metaphors, lots of imagery, uh, lots of Bible language. But typical, and I mean this in a neutral sense, but typical of the Reformed tradition, there will be an emphasis on density of language. That is, <clears throat> it is through walking through a dense field of ideas, um, wonderful ideas, true ideas, that the true knowledge of God and, and the terminal point of adoration is achieved. And that's, I would say, great. It's commendable. It works in many ways, but actually doesn't work for a Pentecostal, charismatic, liturgical, theological context. Because for them, the way, the path towards sort of this beatific vision, this maximal affective and intellectual, you know, knowledge and love of God is achieved through less density of language and a longer expansive musical span, right? Because how can you actually deepen, the Pentecostal would say, your affection for God if you don't make time for a person to have nine minutes worth of music and words and personal appropriation of the words to be able to deepen your affections for God. Whereas a reform would say, actually, 
you know, the terminal point of adoration, maximal adoration is achieved in this way. What I show in the book is they both fit. There's a certain logic to it within sort of their liturgical, theological traditions. Both musical, you know, instances, both songs open up and close down possibilities for the knowledge and love of God, which is similar to, so when I get into the chapter on on architecture, how Romanesque architecture has this very heavy downward, like you just feel very solidly settled, like an oak tree that just is buried into the ground. And you have this sense in which Romanesque architecture works really well with metaphors of God as rock, God as stability, God as sturdy, holding together in the face of the winds and torrents of life. Gothic architecture is built to go up and light, right? Mm. Light as in lighthearted, light as in like the, you know, the sun. And they both do things very, very differently architecturally and on purpose they do things. And I think they both somehow have these analogous relationships to certain metaphors or certain ideas or attributes of God that again, work or don't work as well in others. And again, say if you create a quadrant, Gothic in one, Romanesque in the other, uh, the living room in the third spot, and the, the, the auditorium like Willow Creek Community Church, this massive sort of, um, I don't want to say entertainment auditorium in a pejorative sense, but this huge room like where you would listen to a symphony or a, you know, a musical theater. <clears throat> Each of those architectural spaces opens up and closes down architectural metaphors, as it were, as well as what you can actually do together. Like I have been in Gothic uh, cathedrals, and when you try to sing in Christ alone with lots and lots and lots of stone, there's a lot of ricocheting that happens. (laughs) I feel (laughs) utterly disconnected to the person six pews ahead of me because their voice is just pinging all over the place. Whereas with them, I'm in a living room, I'm like, oh, I can hear it. We can harmonize together. Mm-hmm. And that experience of harmony, musically speaking, dovetails with sort of these um, ecclesiological metaphors of like what it means to be the family together. Whereas a Gothic architecture works really well with the metaphor of church as pilgrim or pilgrimage, right? You come from the door and then you pilgrimage, you know, all the way to the end until you have this vision of the end through a stained glass window or a work of art, you know, that captures your imagination. So those, I guess, would be two chapters that I think were just really fun to write to say, um, I'm not really going to categorically rule out one practice of music or one practice of church architecture, even if I have opinions. But I simply want to help the reader to say, yet again, nothing is neutral. That's right. You talk about how there's these singular powers. Mm. Uh, so I loved, you know, with with mu- the musical arts, there's the singular power of meaning through time. Or, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, with the visual arts, the, the material fixity. Yes. Um, and so that that's you have that in each of these um, art disciplines. Maybe just the one that I found most interesting, uh, just because it's the one that I see the least about talk about the kinetic arts oh, um right. this what is the singular power of of, <laughs> of our <bodies>. dance or <laughs> posture in, right. in the liturgical arts well let's see i'm going to repeat myself at the risk of being boring to the listener what we do with our bodies is not neutral 
Um, now, there is a tradition in, in church history that would say that our souls, which is to say our minds and hearts, as it were, have active agency in worship and our bodies have passive agency. Our bodies are merely receptacles, these neutral receptacles that sort of contain the more interesting, uh, decisive, determinative activities of heart, will, mind, reason, so on and so forth. I, I, I do argue against that, and, and I say that what we do with our bodies forms us. And one of the examples I give is seating arrangement and how we arrange our bodies in a space does affect us, does shape us, form us over time, whether we're all like in rows, you know, back to front, and I can only really see the, your back and the back of your head and the backs of other heads and other people see the back of my heads and my back. Or whether we're in like a half circle, you know, uh, a, a semicircle, semi, you know, half moon, which some cir- some churches do, and they don't close the circle out because they leave the open part as sort of this metaphoric uh, architectural reminder that God is able to interrupt our worship, that we don't close it out, you know, with our circular seating arrangement. But when we're in a semicircle, it's like I can attend. I can see a little bit of you. When we're singing, we are attuned to one another with our bodies. And then the other that I talk about is sort of uh, kind of a face-to-face. You know, if I sit across from you in like a choir stall in a lot of, you know, cathedrals, there really is quite literally sing... uh, you know, teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I mean, that really is a face-to-face experience that our bodies are attending to one another in a way that can be actually quite unnerving. If I see your eyes and your mouth and your face doing things, then it demands something of me. Um, so the psalms are full of, um, uh, you know, music language and and body language, and so the psalms will encourage and join us. To, to be silent, right? So when I was at Tizé many, many, many years ago, and I worshiped with the community there, there's a lot of silence. And there are some things that can only be known. That is, I can only really be truly present to the thoughts of my mind and the, and the feelings of my heart and what it is that God may be saying and doing if I'm quiet, if I am truly, literally, physically quiet. And I've been in charismatic churches. I've been a pastor in charismatic churches. And silence came with difficulty in those spaces for many reasons. Some good, and I think some probably not so good. But when scriptures or the Psalms say, hey, let the earth be silent, there's a truth to be attended to there that certain things about God and ourselves and the world and one another can only be known through our bodies being still and silent. Conversely, there are certain things that can only be known about God and ourselves when we are effusive in our bodies. You know, let the whole earth roar and shout and acclaim. And we know what that feels like when we've been to a sporting event. Like I have been to major football events and it's, you know, the end of football, American football. I'm sorry, this is for you you Brits. I, I would prefer if we call it football. Um, but I have been to soccer events and when the crowd is into it and, and it's like, you know, it's just at the last moment and everybody's cheering and roaring and high-fiving, there's a sense of what it means to be kinderedly connected to one another in that effusive bodily experience. There's something that our bodies need in order to say, shout the praises of God. You cannot shout the praises of God with a body that is 
tamed, you know, and silent. Mm -hmm. So I guess the kinetic arts, I just find so interesting in how our bodies um, and, and many in the church history have, have uh, uh, tuned in to these little hints within the New Testament of how, how our bodies can and often do lead the movements of the heart and mind when the heart and mind are stubbornly refusing <laughs> to, to be you know, softened towards you know, the things that God wishes to communicate. So those are the kind of kinetic things that I find really fun. That's great. And then you you do have this really wise chapter that talks about mother tongue and an accented tongue or, or, is, or is that is that right? Adjectival. Adjectival tongue, that's right. Right. And um so that if anyone's listening and thinking like getting nervous that you're yes. encouraging everyone to go to the furthest foreign <laughs> right. extreme of their current experiences. Right. You know, you talk about well, you can have a home base within the yes. arts. Yes. And you can expand that. Right. Uh, without, um, you know, taking the most different right. um, artistic expression yeah. than you're, you're used to. If I may, just to reassure the, yeah. the listener, I'm not prescribing that we should be omnivorous in our liturgical artistic appetites. We can't right. be everything all the time to all people. At some point, we really do discover what I call a mother tongue or a heart language. Yeah. And it's this thing that uh, that describes that that ability of ours to be truly fully ourselves in the world um, and certainly before God. And, you know, in, in discussions about multicultural, multi-ethnic worship, you know, over the last 20, 20, 25 years or so, I think that really has been a, a very tricky thing to, to negotiate. That is, how do we expand and enrich our worship practices, which is, what I call sort of our adjectival tongue. So adjectives can enrich and enhance and modify and deepen a noun, um, but without losing ourselves. That is without somehow being a smorgasbord, you know, variety show on Sunday morning. What does it mean to honor and respect our heart language, our communal heart language, or our traditional cultural heart language um, <clears throat> without saying, you know, we must have 38 heart languages. I, I think that's just fundamentally uh, impossible. So that chapter, Mother Tongues, is to say, is to make an, a theological argument that that is a good thing, and we must preserve that. At the same time, theologically speaking, adjectives, so I'm mixing my metaphors, of course, adjectives can come into play over time, right? You don't have to accomplish everything on one Sunday, but over time, they can attune us to one another and to other members of the body of Christ throughout time and history and to others in our world through our different artistic practices. And I think that those are gifts that require a great deal of careful, charitable, wise leadership. So I don't pretend that this is easy, but I do think there is a goal to aspire to. That's so great, David. I just so heartily commend this book as a, as a thinking tool for anyone who wants to dive in deeper. I hope that they've got a, a, a a glimpse of the the good wisdom that you've offered offered in glimpses of the the new creation. <laughs> it's it's just such a generative uh, conversation starter. Uh, so thank you so much for coming to talk with us about it. Thank um, you. Ryan. Before I say goodbye, I, I'm just so curious to know what are you working on at the moment. <laughs> well, uh, funny you should ask, Ryan. I am actually coming to the end ish of a new book on a theology of the body as it relates to our liturgical context. So I'm taking one chapter in Glimpse of the Creation and writing 250 pages on it. 
And so I'm doing a little bit more of a deep dive on church history and the body and worship theology, the body and worship science, the body and worship uh, ethics, the body and worship art, body and worship, so on and so forth. And uh, then I have two last chapters, one on uh, the spontaneous body, um, the extemporaneous body, and one on what I call the prescribed body. That is, bodies doing the same thing week after week, and how that can mm. form us, and how that can be a good thing. And again, imagine traditions <clears throat> that tend to go half and half on like it's all spontaneous or it's all prescribed. So I'm having a great deal of fun uh, right now doing science in the body and discovering all the wonderful things that you know, uh, neuropsychology and neurobiology and all these scientific disciplines might have to offer, you know, insights and wisdoms on what happens to our bodies when we do stuff with them. Hmm. Well, I'm excited and I've only known about it for, for the last 45 <laughs> seconds. Hopefully it comes out soon and we can have you back on and, and oh, talk all great. about it. Yeah. So uh, this has been a conversation with W. David O. Taylor, author of Glimpses of the New Creation, Worship and the Formative Power of the Arts, published by Erdman's. David, thanks so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you, Ryan. A pleasure. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Go to our website at newbooksnetwork.com. You can find all sorts of great interviews in whatever possible academic discipline you could think of. And as always, the most important thing you can do to support what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network is... If you can think of anyone who might have found the conversation that we had here today interesting, send them a link. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day. 